0: This is Dean Mathis, the director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. Today we're in Hebrews chapter 3 and we're talking about the disaster of a hard heart. From time to time, ever since I can remember, I've sometimes heard people use a phrase when they're trying to emphasize something serious that what they're saying is as serious as a heart attack. When things happen to that pump in the middle of our upper chest, we get very concerned. And if you've ever had the experience of a heart attack or the potential of one, you know what I'm talking about. But the Bible also talks about another kind of heart problem. It's called a hard heart or a hardened heart. It's a spiritual issue, and it's one that we have a warning about in Hebrews chapter 3, alluding back to a situation that happened some 1,450 years or so before the time of the writing of this particular letter in the history of the nation of Israel. And also in this chapter, the writer picks up on another one of his themes about showing how Jesus is superior to some of the great tenets of Judaism, which in this case is Jesus is superior to Moses. And of course, if you know anything about Judaism, Moses is a very important part of that because Moses is the great lawgiver and the person that God used to deliver the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And that particular part of their experience is commemorated in the Passover to this very day. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, because what he previously said is true, Jesus is superior to angels. And because that's true, the first warning that he gives is that they should remain faithful and not neglect the salvation that they have but continue to grow in that salvation and to continue to remain faithful to their profession of faith in Christ and not lapse back into a system that is basically inferior to the one they now have through faith in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, and of course this lets us know that he's talking to people who are real believers. They are holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. So these are people that in the mind of the author are believers. They're not going to be believers. They already are. And so he is admonishing them as believers in their faithful walk in the Lord. And he said, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So here he points out two really complementary things. Jesus is, like Moses, is the one sent by God to accomplish salvation for us. But he's also the high priest of our confession. Therefore. Like Moses was the one sent to do delivering, but the high priest was Moses' brother Aaron. So Jesus is superior in that he is both the one sent, and he actually completed the work that Moses started. Then he also is now the new high priest of our confession. He, that is Jesus, was faithful to him, that is God the Father, who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the houses has more honor than the house. Okay. So Moses had a glorified position in a a place of honor and respect, which he does abide to this day. However, Jesus is more worthy because Moses just worked in the house. Jesus is the one who is the builder of the house. And a builder always has more honor than the house that he built. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And Jesus, being the son of God, is the builder of this house. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So Moses has a great place of honor, but the writer says, don't forget, he was just a servant in the house. Remember that Jesus not only is the builder of the house, he is the son. Years ago, my wife and I, like millions of other people, became faithful watchers of a program called Downton Abbey, which is the story of a upper class noble family in England in the early 20th century. From roughly 1912 through 1924 or 28, somewhere in there, and uh, they had many up, ups and downs. And in the show, there was a very important character who was the head butler, Mr. Carson. But at the end of it all, when the show ended, he didn't get to stay at Downton Abbey, he, even though he held the the head position as chief of all the staff and held a very important role in the family and all of that. In the end, he inhe- he did not inherit anything because. He was just a servant. That's the picture here. Moses was just a servant. The whole plot of the show it revolved around the fact that the family was trying to find an heir, a male heir that could assume title of Downton Abbey and the estate and also the title of Lord over that particular place. That finally came in the birth of a son to the oldest daughter. Well, Jesus is the son. He is the greatest servant of God that ever lived, but he's also the son of God. And therefore, he inherits all things by being the great servant and finishing the work of salvation for all of us. We can all inherit everything that he has accomplished by faith in him. And so he is superior to the Mosaic code. Moses gave the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law. Not even Moses could keep the law that God gave to us through him. Even he failed and died as a sinner. But Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, triumphant over death. Now, picking up in verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, that's a very important verse because it tells us, again, as we have been reminded before in Scripture, that the author of all of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Yes, men wrote the Bible. But they wrote the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here he credits the Holy Spirit with writing Psalm 95. And he quotes from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11 here. He quotes verbatim. And he says, I'm quoting the Holy Spirit here. And whoever wrote that Psalm, whether it was David or one of the other psalmists, that was a human agency. But the true divine agency was the Holy Spirit of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So here is a warning that there's a disaster if we harden our heart against God and do not continue to grow in grace by exercising faith in the promises of God and trusting God, even during difficult times. There's something we miss out on. Do not harden your heart as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. All right? He's looking back to an event that is described in Numbers chapters 14 and 15, where the nation rebelled against God at Kadesh Barnea, and they refused to go on into the land of Israel, on into the territory of the Canaanites, and take possession of the land. From the time of the Exodus until they reached the oasis at Kadesh Barnea, just south of what later becomes the territory of the tribe of Judah, that took somewhere in the neighborhood of a year to two years. Uh, Down at Sinai, they spent some time getting the law of God, getting organized as a nation, building the tabernacle and all of that. And then they moved forward. And during that time, they provoked God some 10 times. But the straw that broke the camel's back was the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. Moses, prior to invading the territory, sent some spies into the land to take a look at it. When they came back, they gave a great report in that they said the land is indeed flowing with milk and honey. They carried a bunch of the grapes in to show you the the abundance of the land. It took two men to carry this one bunch of grapes. Today, that emblem is the symbol of the Israeli Tourism Agency. But they rebelled. And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, gave a good report and said, Yeah, it's flowing with milk and honey. It's everything God promised and more, and we can take it. Ten of the spies, though, said, no, we can't take it. We're going to die in the wilderness, and our children are going to die here in the wilderness because it's full of fortified cities, and we're like grasshoppers in these people's eyes, and they're trained warriors, and we're not, so on and so forth. And they rebelled against God, and they were going to kill Moses and Aaron and cause the people to rise up against them, and God intervened, and then he judged them. He said, because you've done this, you people who said that I brought you up here and you would not be able to take the land and your children would die. The opposite's going to happen. You're going to die and your children are going to live and you're going to have to wander around in this wilderness for 40 years until this whole generation is gone. And then your children will take the land. And that's exactly what happened. So they provoked him. It's called the great provocation. And that was the thing that caused them to lose out on entering into what they called entering into God's rest. I'm not going to let you enter into my rest, which would meant that they would go in, take possession of the land and get to enjoy it. They who had been former slaves would now be the inheritors of great property and cities that they hadn't built and all kinds of things, but they didn't have enough faith to trust God to give them the victory over these people that were bigger than they were and over these fortresses That were there in the land they were going to inherit a great land but they didn't have enough faith to go take it so let's read on what he says do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years we'll come back to that 40 years in just a minute therefore i was angry with this generation And said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they would not enter my rest. They would not get to enjoy the land, not because I didn't want to give it to them, but because they didn't have enough faith in me to take it. The problem is not me. The problem is them. Now, the key factor there is the word 40 years. It took 40 years for that generation to die in the wilderness. From that point forward, it was basically one long funeral procession as the children of Israel wandered around Sinai. And they would camp and then they had various times they would rebel against God. Various things would happen and then there would be a plague or something. But it averaged out to about 60, 70 funerals a day because there were some 150 million to 200 million people that came out of Egypt. We don't know exactly the number, but it was a large group. So the people that were aged twenty and older passed away, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. God said, These two men, the clock will stop for them, and they won't age another day. And that's exactly what happened. When they finished the wilderness wanderings, Joshua was eighty and Caleb was eighty-two, but they weren't physically a day older than they had been in the prime of their lives. They went on and took the land and lived out a full lifespan and more in the land, enjoying the rest that God gave them there by having the possession of the territory that God had promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, he's applying this to these people. It had been about 35 years since the nation had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus had predicted that there was a coming judgment. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, there's a coming judgment on the nation that has rejected Jesus. But you have not rejected Jesus as the Messiah Therefore, don't go back into that system, because if you go back into that system, you will lose your lives physically. You're not going to lose your salvation, but if you apostatize, if you go back into that, you will fall under the judgment that is coming on this nation. Just like those people didn't lose their spiritual salvation, but they lost their physical lives in the wilderness and did not get to enjoy in this life the benefits that God had wanted them to have. So too. Christians can lose out on the benefits that God wants them to have in this life spiritually. They will also lose out on some of the rewards that he wants to give them in the kingdom era by not being faithful. So this is an admonition to believers to be faithful. So we pick it up in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't harden your heart and commit the sin of unbelief. That's the big sin here. For if we become partakers of Christ, and they were partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So one of the ways that we demonstrate that we're true believers is that we do hold fast, our faith, until the end of our lives. There's a great blessing and a reward for that. Some believers fall out and quit being faithful to the Lord, and they lose in this life, and they lose something in the life to come in some of the rewards that they could have had. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. Don't be like those people at Kadesh Barnea. And come under physical judgment and lose your physical life, lose your life prematurely because you are rebelling against God. And that's the warning that is here. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who had come out of Egypt led by Moses? And even Moses and Aaron and Miriam, all of whom we know were saved people, those people also died without entering into the promised land because they too Sinned in the wilderness, wandering, and they they were implicated with the rebellion of the nation at Kadesh Barnea. Like I said, the only exception to that was the two spies who said, "We can go take this land. We need to trust God and do it." With whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but that those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Some people interpret the book of Hebrews by saying what we're talking about here is that you can lose your salvation after you've become a believer. Or sometimes people profess faith and then they don't. They really weren't believers to start with. Now, that's always a possibility. But in this case, it's been made abundantly clear in the first three chapters that these people are really believers. So it's not talking about losing their salvation here. He's talking about losing their lives because this judgment is coming on the nation, which came in 70 AD. Throughout the book of Acts, Jewish people were called upon to separate themselves from the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And the way they did that was by professing Jesus as Messiah, and then also by being baptized. And that is what these people were thinking about not doing, was they had professed faith in Christ, they were true believers, but they weren't going to really identify with Christ. In fact, they were going to go back into Judaism because obviously from the way the letter is written, they were experiencing a period of persecution. And he said, you're going to lose something when you do that. When you do not trust the Lord with the difficulties that sometimes come, and these difficulties are allowed by God to enable us to grow in our faith and trust in him, God will give us the strength to endure these things. And if we lose something in this life, if we are dispossessed of something or we refused a promotion or something else or the world persecutes us in some way, the Lord makes it up to us by spiritual blessings in our heart. And then he also will make it up to us in the victory that is ours in the life to come and also the victory that is ours in this current time. And the thing he's warning them here is not about losing their salvation, but about losing their spiritual maturity. There's a special rest or peace that comes in the life of a believer who persistently continues to grow in their trust in the Lord. It's called by theologians the faith rest life. It is a place where some of the great Christians we've known reach where, regardless of what may be happening in their lives, they understand that God is at work, that He is constantly holding their hand, that He's always with us no matter what, and they enter into a period of Tremendous peace and joy, even in the midst of difficulties that inevitably come. That's what he's encouraging them to do here. He's also encouraging them here to encourage each other with that. One of the ways I help myself is by helping other people, by praying for them, by encouraging them. And in turn, they, they do that back for me. So we're to be, first of all, an encouragement society with each other. And then secondly, we are to trust God in all things. And we're not to be like the people at Kadesh Marnia who saw a tremendous opportunity, but then they didn't have enough faith in God and even enough faith in themselves to go ahead and possess what God had already promised. So let's not fall short like that. Don't harden your heart. The disaster of a hard heart is as serious as a heart attack. And God wants you to avoid that. God wants to bless you in all things. Have a great day.